The following podcast is a production of The Network. Check us out on BICBP-radio.com. Welcome back to another episode of This Week in Creepy History. I'm your host, Chris Chavez, and we're about to cover the week of April 18th to April 24th. You know, if you've listened before what this show is about, I look at the upcoming week and see what happened in the past. A lot of times I'm going to cover creepy, weird, horrific things, and then I'll try to counterbalance that with something that's a little bit more of a light fare, if you will. Uh, We're going to get right into it. Let's start right away. April 18th. 1775, going back to the beginning of America. American revolutionary Paul Revere rode through the towns of Massachusetts, warning that, quote, the British are coming. So we all know this. If you, again, if you're American and you grew up going to school, you know, you learned Paul Revere riding through the streets, the whole thing about lighting the, the torches or the candles, you know, one if by land, two if by sea, it might be vice versa. I can't remember. Uh, but there was also that thing about him riding through the through these towns and, and you know, kind of giving this cry out that the British were coming, the British were coming. Uh, and I always thought I knew this story until I did research for this. And I found out a few surprising things. So the following info I'm about to give you is from history.com. Creepers. Let me know if you've known any of these pieces of uh, of trivia before. First, Revere was not alone on his mission to warn John Hancock, Samuel Adams, and other patriots that the British were approaching Lexington on the evening of April 18, 1775. I did know this. I knew he wasn't alone in this. Uh, Two other men, William Dawes and Samuel Prescott, rode alongside him, and by the end of the night, as many as 40 men on horseback were spreading the word across Boston's Suffolk County. I didn't know that. 40 men on horseback by the end of the night are spreading the word. That's insane. Next piece, Revere also never reached Concord. Overtaken by the British, the three riders split up and headed in different directions. Revere was temporarily detained by the British at Lexington and Dawes lost his way after falling off his horse leaving Prescott the task of alerting Concord's reticence. I think I do remember something about the fact that he had gotten detained. I, I, you know what, though? It, it may be just that I read this, and now I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I remember reading that. Uh, this last piece was the one that got me. Paul Revere never shouted the legendary phrase later attributed to him. The operation was meant to be conducted as discreetly as possible since scores of British troops were hiding out in Massachusetts countryside. Furthermore, colonial Americans at that time still considered themselves British. If anything, Revere may have told other rebels that the regulars, a term uh, that they used designated for British soldiers, were on the move. So that was cool. I didn't know that. Like I've grown up my whole life thinking that Paul Revere literally rode around screaming at the top of his lungs, the British were coming. But man, wouldn't he? His his voice would have been hoarse by then. Hoarse. Okay, let's go on. April 18th. 1779 real people premieres on nbc tv 
Real People was a reality series that originally aired until 1984 featuring, quote, real people as opposed to celebrities uh, with unique occupations or hobbies. The show was hosted by a group of well-known personalities that uh, presented pre-filmed segments focusing on everyday folks to a large studio audience. The hosts would comment on the clips, joke around, and interact with the audience. And occasionally, guests were brought into studio to interact as well. Uh, when I say guests, I mean like the real people featured in this. And that's what it was. They show these little vignettes of regular everyday people in you know their everyday lives. You can consider this one of the earlier reality TV uh, programs. Let's go on. April 19th, 1993. Oof, this one. The FBI ends a 51-day siege by storming the Branch Davidian religious cult headquarters in Waco, Texas. I remember this big time. Um, the Branch Davidians were a religious sect of the Seventh-day Adventists founded in 1955 by Benjamin Roden. Our good friends at Wikipedia say that, quote, in 1981, a young man named Vernon Howell, later known as David Koresh, came to Mount Carmel and studied biblical prophecy under Lois Roden. This was Benjamin's wife. Uh, by 1984, the core group of Davidians had shifted their allegiance from Lois's son, George, to Koresh. On February 28, 93, at 4.20 a.m., the uh, ATF, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, attempted to execute a search warrant relating to alleged sexual abuse charges and illegal weapons violation. On April 19, 1993, the FBI moved for a final siege of the compound using large weaponry to combat the heavily armed Branch Davidians. The FBI attempted to use tear gas to flush out the Davidians. Officially, FBI agents were only permitted to return any incoming fire, not to actively assault the Branch Davidians. When several of those members opened fire, the FBI response was to increase the amount of gas being used. Around noon, three fires broke out simultaneously in different parts of the building. The government maintains that the fires were started deliberately by the quote-unquote cult. Uh, some Branch Davidian survivors maintain that the fires were started either accidentally or deliberately by assault. Of the 85 Branch Davidians in the compound when the final siege began, 76 died on April 19th in various ways, from falling rubble to suffocating effects of the fire or by gunshot from fellow Branch Davidians. The siege lasted 51 days. I remember this was a big deal, and it was this kind of uproar in terms of people were trying to say they were doing this religious thing, and the government was coming in and imposing their will. And the government was saying, listen, there's a lot of stuff they're talking about, a lot of sexual misconduct happening. You know, they're doing things with weapons that at that time they weren't allowed to, you know, you know, have specific types of weapons. Um, and so it became this big thing. And I remember it kind of, uh, almost like it looked like, it looked like a different country, man. It looked like, like, you know, soldiers invading another country. And, and, and I, I, the one thing that always comes to mind whenever I think of this Waco, Texas incident is the fires is those big, like big black billowing clouds of smoke just coming out from the complex. Yeah, this was a, I remember this definitely in, in, uh, Back in the old days, 1993. Okay, kids, let's move on. April 19th, 1927. Actress Mae West was found guilty of obscenity and corrupting the morals of youth in a New York stage play entitled Sex. She was sentenced to 10 days in prison and fined $500. But the resulting publicity did much to launch her Hollywood career and make her one of the highest paid people in the United States. She went on to write and star in another show, The Pleasure Man, that dealt with homosexuality, but which ran for only one performance before West was again arrested for obscenity. This time, a jury could not agree on her guilt. 
Uh, yeah, Mae West was one of these kind of early, you know, symbols of, the, of these women that just kind of didn't give a fuck. They didn't give a shit about, you know, the patriarchy. They didn't give a shit about what was expected of them and the role that they were supposed to fit in. Uh, she did her thing and she did it, you know, proudly. Uh, and she definitely flaunted her her sex appeal and, didn't, and really didn't care. She's one of the... Uh, the uh, pioneers if you will she she had a lot of other things going on too don't don't get me wrong but um you know this is for me this is impressive she's just like gets prison time gets fine money and she's like you thought that was bad wait till i do my next play all right let's go on april 20th 1999 two students oh here we go this is another horrible one jesus christ a lot of shit happened in april uh back in the day april 20th 1999 Two students wearing ski masks carved a path of carnage through Columbine High School in Denver, Colorado, firing automatic weapons and throwing homemade bombs, killing 13 people and wounding 24 others before both committing suicide. Eric Harris and Dylan Claybold had originally planted two homemade bombs in the cafeteria and were planning on murdering the students as they ran from the building. When the bombs failed to go off, they went into the school and began the massacre. And this one is definitely something I remember as well. It was uh, horrifying, you know. Um, we didn't see mass gun violence in the capacity of Columbine and, and definitely not as much as we do nowadays, to be honest with you. It sucks because it's almost like we're desensitized to it. It's happening every single day. Like the other day, it was like two days ago, three days ago, it was like there was four or five different shootings that they were talking about on the news and you just couldn't keep track of what was going on. And yes, you know, it, a lot of it has to do with the fact that now the news is focusing on it more and so you're hearing about it more. Uh, but back then, you know, it wasn't something that you heard of. And then and the fact that these two students just kind of went in and did this. And then when more of the stories came out later of, of what happened and some of the, the confrontations that that occurred, you know, it was even more horrific, man. This was this was definitely a horrible stain on American history and definitely like 1999, man. This was a, a shit way to end that decade. All right, let's move to April 20th, 2018. Actress Johnny covered this one. Actress Allison Mack, known for her roles as Chloe Sullivan on the WBCW series Smallville and as Amanda on the FX series Wilfred, is arrested on charges of sex trafficking in relation to a sex cult, Nexium, in New York. Uh, I'm not going to get too far into this. Johnny definitely covers this much better than I could in our uh, previous episode of History Creeps. If you haven't heard it, go check it out. Um, he goes, you know, he tells us all about it, how it started, you know, the weirdos behind it and a lot of this crazy shit that went down. So uh, next, April 21st, 1934, the Daily Mail publishes the, quote, surgeon's photograph, end quote, the first photo of a head and neck of the supposed Loch Ness monster. This is the iconic Nessie photo that everyone has seen. The photo was supposedly taken by Robert Kenneth Wilson, a London gynecologist, I say supposedly because later Wilson's refusal to have his name associated with it uh, became kind of like a, hmm, what's going on there, right? But before the change of heart, he claimed he was looking at the lock when he saw the monster, grabbed his camera, and snapped four photos. Only two came out somewhat clearly, and one of which is the famed snapshot that we have all come to know and love. Um, yeah, we, you know, we've talked about cryptids on the show before. I think we've covered Nessie. If not, I know we've covered, you know, 
something along those lines. We've definitely mentioned Nessie, but uh, if if you follow our show and you know History Creeps, you obviously know about Loch Ness Monster. You don't need me to tell you what that is. But uh, yeah, April 21st, 1934 was when the famed photo, the one that you know, was first published in the Daily Mail. Let's go to 1986, uh, April 21st. This one... So I don't remember this in terms of actually seeing it, but I remember it vaguely like a few years after it, the references to it and and uh, how, you know, it became kind of a, a comedic thing. So April 21st, 1986, Geraldo Rivera opens Al Capone's vault on live TV and finds nothing. The mystery of Al Capone's vaults was a two-hour live American television special that was greatly hyped as potentially revealing great riches or dead bodies on live television. Because of this, the show included the presence of a medical examiner, should bodies be found, and agents from the IRS to collect any of Capone's money that may be discovered. Regarding this, Wiki tells us, quote, when the vault was finally opened, the only things found inside were dirt and several empty bottles, including one Rivera claimed was for, for moonshine bathtub gins. After several attempts to dig further into the vault, Geraldo admitted defeat and voiced his disappointment to the viewers, apologizing as he thanked the ex- excavation team for their efforts. Although it gathered criticism and became infamous for its disappointing ending, the program was the most watched syndicated television special that year with an estimated audience of 30 million viewers. So I remember that too, like the idea that Geraldo was kind of this, this, you know, carnival barker and people and the way he just kind of put this over the top and sensationalist. Yeah. Nothing's changed. Right. The sensationalist thing that like that we might even find bodies in there. Uh, it became kind of fodder for comedy for years after Okay, let's move on. April 22nd, 2000. I remember this one as well. Six-year-old Elian Gonzalez, a Cuban refugee who survived a shipwreck in which his mother drowned, is taken by a SWAT team from other Cuban relatives in Miami. Following a number of court battles, the little boy is returned to his father in Cuba. The big thing I remember about this is, and, and I'm sure anybody who knows about this or remembers this, when I said Elian Gonzalez, the first thing that came to your mind was this photo that they published in pretty much every paper across the country. It was all over the news. This one photo of one of his family members hiding in a closet, holding him, right? And there's a SWAT team that's coming into the bedroom and they're tearing open this closet door. And there's this like this this weapon, just this gun pointed right at this kid, uh, this rifle pointed right at this kid. And there's this terrified look on everyone's faces. And it just looked insane. Though. And if you've not seen this, look it up. Look up Elian Gonzalez, E-L-I-A-N Gonzalez on uh, Google. And I'm sure that's going to be pretty much the first 500 pictures you see. But I remember that being a big thing. And then it became this huge thing about how you know the American government responded, how the SWAT team responded, how that kind of, it was a little, it was way overboard. Um, it was, it was, it was insane. April 22nd, 1991, Johnny Carson announces he will be retiring from the tonight show. Uh, he hosted it from 1962 to 1992. He would be succeeded by comedian Jay Leno, who would then give way to Conan O'Brien before infamously reclaiming hosting duties. Current host Jimmy Fallon took over the late night duties in 2014. I think so with Jimmy, when, when it comes to Johnny Carson, um, I remember the thing about Johnny Carson is I remember being a little kid and staying up super late with my grandmother and she'd stay up late and watch this show, uh, his show. And I used to watch it and I used to love him doing this mystic kind. He used to do this character where he brought out this hat 
and he wore it and it was supposed to be this gimmick where somebody handed him a an envelope and he would hold it to his forehead and he would say a phrase or something and basically it was the answer to a question and when he opened the envelope he would read whatever question was in there and you know a lot of times it it would come out funny in in the response he gave how it wouldn't really match but it would kind of um but yeah, that's about it, man. Johnny Carson was definitely before my time. Uh, even Leno, like I remember Leno taking over, and I wasn't watching late night at that time. I was younger, you know, and you're not really paying attention to that. It was a bigger deal when Conan O'Brien took it, and I definitely remember when Jay Leno, uh, you know, decided he wanted it back, and there was that big to do over at NBC. Anyway, April twenty second, ninety one, Carson announces he's peacing out and he's done with Tonight's Show. Let's move on to the twenty third, nineteen eighty four. Researchers announced that they have discovered and isolated a virus they say is likely to be the primary cause of AIDS, the mysterious and deadly disease that destroys the body's protective immune system. The first news story on the disease appeared May 18, 1981, in the gay newspaper New York Native. In the early days, the CDC did not have an official name for the disease and at one point referred to it as the, quote, 4-H disease, as the syndrome seemed to affect heroin users, homosexuals, hemophiliacs, and Haitians. Wow. Talk about, like, the quadruple offensive, right? Um, but anyway, yeah, dude, so again, I'm super young here when AIDS is happening, and it's, but it's, I'm very aware of it, you know, as a kid. You heard about it at the time. Um so much so of the, the the horrors of it that as you I started getting into kind of you know middle school high school years and definitely in the years where you're no you know you're starting to think about sex um, th- this is definitely something that's on your mind this it was pounded into your head that like you know no matter what you do you got to protect yourself not even just about pregnancy but about HIV about AIDS um, but yeah in eight, 1984 you know is when they discovered that HIV is what was leading to to uh, was the primary cause of AIDS um, all right let's move on to 1931 we're going back in time April 23rd 1931 gangster film the public enemy starring James Cagney and Gene Harlow premieres So aside from this being deemed culturally and historically significant by the Library of Congress, the film contains a number of scenes that are, I mean, these, so you know, you've always heard these kinds of movies where like people say, watch this movie and there's a scene that happens. And when you watch it, everything you're seeing is genuine because the actor or the actress didn't know this was going to happen or so that's, that's a big deal about this movie. There's a lot of scenes in this movie that were super authentic uh, and done you know, realistically, and and sometimes without the actors or actresses' knowledge, there's a scene where uh, Cagney takes a half of a grapefruit and smashes it into uh, in Gene Harlow's face. And if you watch it, you know you see she's really you know kind of upset by it. And it was because you know apparently she wasn't expecting it. Then there's things that came out later that said she did. She you know she was expecting it. That she was just that kind of you know she was that good of an actress. Uh, but that happened. I read somewhere also that they used live ammunition in this film. Like there's a scene where James Cagney was standing by a building and they open fire and he ducks out just in time. And you literally see these bullets just kind of perforate the the wall where his head had been, you know, just moments earlier. And it was real. It was real bullets. So um, it was it, that's this is one of these movies, Public Enemy. If you've never seen it and you're into gangster films, check it out. If you're into films overall, you know, you can appreciate older films. Uh, definitely check it out. James Cagney was one, you know, this was one of the guys that kind of set the stage for what a gangster was. When you think of those old Scott, old style uh, movies, gangsters, it's because of James Cagney. Alrighty, last day of the week, April 24th, 
1924. The governor of Indiana, Warren G. McRae, resigns after being found guilty of mail fraud. This one is a little bonkers, so buckle up. Our good buddy Wick says, quote, He came into conflict with the growing influence of the Indiana Ku Klux Klan after vetoing legislation they supported. The Indiana Ku Klux Klan had been rising in power over the past decade in Indiana. Although it was unknown to McRae at the time, over half the members of the Indiana General Assembly were Klansmen. Several members of the administration were also Klansmen, including Indiana Secretary of State Edward L. Jackson. In 1921, the General Assembly passed a bill to approve a Klan Day at the state fair. Yeah, creepers, you heard that right. A Klan Day, complete with cross burnings and other Klan trappings. This was the legislation that uh, McRae promptly vetoed, angering Klan members. Um, Yeah, when I read this, I was like, what is going on right now? His personal estate was threatened with bankruptcy during his term, and he solicited loans via the mail in order to help maintain his home and took a questionable loan from the State Department of Agriculture. The Indiana Attorney General was a Klan member and used the opportunity to bring a suit against the governor for embezzlement, for which he was not found guilty. Immediately after the embezzlement case failed, a new case was launched in federal court claiming he had solicited private loans in a fraudulent way. He resigned from office after his conviction for mail fraud and served three years in federal prison before being paroled in 27 and pardoned by President Herbert Hoover in 1930. But yeah, I was reading this as one of the things I thought, okay, let's see what the mail fraud was. And then I started seeing all this stuff with the Ku Klux Klan and Indiana State General Assembly. And I was like, what in the world? And the fact that they wanted a clan day at the fair. I don't even want to know what those fair, you know, those games look like. Or what is that like? What do those rides look like? I don't even want to know. Let's move on. April 24th, 2008. Actor Wesley Snipes was sentenced shortly after 6 p.m. Thursday to the maximum term of three years in federal prison on three misdemeanor convictions of failure to file his income taxes. So that's right there, folks. Make sure you file your income taxes. Um... Snipes was also sentenced to one year of supervised release. He was not taken into custody immediately. Must be nice, right? Well, I guess if it's this kind of a thing, like tax stuff, they're not thinking like you're going to take off, right? They're, I mean, it's it, they're like, yo, it's it's tax evasion. It's a chill prison system. You're not like going in with hardened criminals, at least I'm assuming. Um, after the day-long hearing, U.S. District Judge William Terrell Hodges talked of the importance of deterrence in tax cases and noted that despite Snipes' apology in court, he had a years-long record of defying the tax laws. There was no fine imposed. The judge left that to the civil process. A member of Snipes' legal team said they will appeal, quote, we're hoping for a complete acquittal. I have faith in the process and I have faith in the jury system. We will appeal, Attorney Linda Moreno said. Uh, Snipes' co-defendants, Eddie Ray Khan and Douglas Rosile, were both convicted on two felony counts receiving longer sentences. Khan, who has refused throughout to acknowledge Hodge's authority, was given the maximum sentence of 10 years plus three years of supervised release. So this guy's being a dick in court, right? Like the, the every time the judge says like something, he's like, pff, pff, you know what? Whatever. I don't want to listen to you. I mean, you already know you're busted, right? And you know you're going to get some sort of sentence. Why would you do something just to try to be like what? A douchebag. Like you're, you're, you're going to get the worst. You're going to get the maximum. Rosal was sentenced to four and a half years in prison and three years of supervised release. Before the sentencing, Snipes read a lengthy statement in his defense, character, characterizing himself as a caring, principled family man and an artist who was duped by, quote, jackals and wolves. 
Snipes began by thanking the judge, saying, quote, I'm very sorry for my mistakes and my errors. Oh, man. Um, yeah, I remember this, too. I remember when uh, we found out Leslie Snipes was going to jail for tax evasion. And, I mean, look, I'm not getting into it, man. I'm not getting into the politics of it, but you're going to tell me there's not other people out there that did the same thing and are still walking around like it's no problem. Um, there was a lot of people that thought maybe he was being targeted for you know speaking up and voicing him, voicing certain things at the time. Maybe we'll cover it on History Creeps in the future. Maybe we'll do a conspiracy episode. Uh, who knows? But there you go, guys. That is the week in creepy history, April 18th to April 24th. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, again, we always appreciate the fact that you guys are supporting us. You guys listen to us. If you're so inclined, head on over to patreon.com slash history creeps, become a part of the creeper clubhouse and listen to some exclusive series and content that's there. Uh, there's some new stuff that's going up for the month of April here in the next few days. So if you are already a clubhouse member, go check it out. Other than that, again, thanks so much for listening. We appreciate everything. Uh, I don't remember what I said as my last closing line, and I always want to try to have closing lines, and I'm rambling now, so it's time to end the show. Guys, I'll see you next time. As always, stay creepy. Stay creepy.